0: My name is Saul Wordsworth, and this is the Transportation Podcast from TTI. Hello, I'm Saul Wordsworth, editor at large of Traffic Technology International, the world's leading publication for traffic management intelligent transportation systems and tolling. Welcome to the Transportation Podcast from TTI. Our interview today is with Peter Norton, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. Peter talks about his recent book, Autonorama, a history of promises of car utopia that have recurred throughout history and an important warning to the industry that cars are not always the solution to everything. Subjects of discussion include smart highways, autonomous vehicles, and the importance, or otherwise, of ITS. Additional and exclusive content from the interview will appear in the September issue of TTI. But first... It's time to check in with TTI editor Tom Stone, live from his immensely tidy home on England's South Coast. Always a pleasure to see you. How are you? I'm very well,
1: very well, thank you. Yeah, enjoying the summer. Summer's, summer's upon us and with uh, lots of, lots of uh, um, events going on. Have you been to any events recently, other than Glastonbury? Uh, I was at Traffex in Birmingham, for, uh, uh, which was, which was a, uh, a very, very enjoyable event in the industry, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to going to um, LA quite soon for the, uh, for the ITS World Congress. That's, that's, that's going to be uh, a, an exciting event, sure. But yeah, but I was
0: at Glastonbury. That, that was a good one. Just to link it in with the podcast, how did you get to Glastonbury?
1: I've, yeah, I got there by coach, actually. Did you? Yeah, and I found that was a... I mean, I've, in the past, I've, I've, I've often driven, but the coach was fantastic. So efficient. You know, it's a great way of moving a lot of people, as it, it turns out.
0: It is. Well, I might go next year, and if I do, I, I plan to head there by drone. Well,
1: yeah, you could, you could take an Evitol taxi, perhaps, or something like that, and they'd yeah. fly straight in over the fence and not have to even pay. Someone did try and do that one year. They was in, in the olden days, they used to be able to climb the fence at Blastonbury. They've cracked down a lot on that in recent years, but I do remember someone trying to fly in, in a, on a microlight
0: Tell me, Thomas, who is our feature interview today?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I had a really lovely experience this week because it's been, it's been quite nice weather, and uh, I've been reading a book called Autonorama by, uh, by Peter Norton. Um, and it's a fascinating book. It's just like, it's got a great history of, of, of some of the uh, promises of car utopia that have recurred through history and uh And peter strings them together he's he's a professor at virginia university and he he strings them together just beautifully creating this narrative and some great bri- some really important warnings i think for uh for our industry not to you know be seduced by the uh you know the cars of the solution to everything because you know buses such as the one I took to Glastonbury you know are actually you know they' they work uh, uh just as well if not better in many many circumstances um, so I had a, a great uh, a great experience of, i've been reading i've been reading this book and i and I was able to finish it sitting in the sun uh one morning and then uh speak to uh, speak to peter um just uh, a couple of days later um uh, all about the book which i just was a, was a great privilege because how often do you get to finish a great book and then speak to its author
0: Now it's time for the main event. So sit back and enjoy Tom's chat with Peter Norton, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia, and author of the recent book, Autonorama. Tell me about
1: the the book and how that came about and and just a a brief overview before we go into, into detail.
2: Yeah, so my interest was in history. Uh, When I spoke to audiences, I would then often be asked about the future, especially about automation, which I didn't feel particularly competent to uh, talk about, so I studied it. And as I did, it seemed so strangely similar to the promotions of car utopias that I had been reading about from the past. In other words, uh, you know, 80 or 90 years ago, we were getting promised futures, particularly in the U.S., where you could drive anywhere at any time and park for free, without delay, uh, and you could do this even in big cities. This was the this was the product, if I could put it like that, that was being sold, and uh, the success wasn't in the product itself. The success was in getting people to buy things in the hope of reaching that impossible future Um, in pursuing that impossible future we substantially destroyed our own cities and developed a very unsustainable way of getting around and then when i started to look at the promises of autonomous vehicles uh, and other high-tech kinds of uh, mobility in the future while some of that looked useful uh, some of the little useful for example in terms of nation or preventing cleans most of the promotion looked as preposterous as the promotions that i had seen from the 20th century
1: it's fascinating it starts the book starts the fascinating sort of history of you know the, the reason the book the name of the book or tonorama takes its name uh, from uh Futurama, which was the first, going way, way back, the very first um, sort of iteration of these sort of uh, automotive visions of the future, Futurama. Uh, re- refresh my memory exactly what the original Futurama was. So in
2: 1939 and 1940, there was a World's Fair in New York City, and uh, companies, many companies, had big exhibits. The biggest was the General Motors exhibit. It was in a pavilion called Highways and Horizons, and it included an enormous model uh, on the order of half an acre in size uh, with a uh, vision of the future in which everybody's driving everywhere, and that's the only way to get around, and it works perfectly. That was their version of the city of the future, by which they meant 1960. Amazingly, we have been getting visions of the future 20 years hence ever since. Um, And uh, I I used to sell things door to door and one thing they taught us in sales school was don't hit the same customer too frequently with two different salespeople because uh, after the first round, they get a little skeptical and you, you don't wanna have somebody show up Hours later, with the same kind of sales pitch. Well, I think the version of that we are dealing with uh, in the history of selling cars and driving is you can't sell these utopias every year. People get skeptical, and so you have to lighten up for a while until some new tech comes along, and the new tech lets you make big claims because tech makes the impossible seem possible. And so how it's worked out is that with remarkable consistency every 25 years we've had another vision of the city of the future the future being 20 years away so in 1940 that vision was 1960. In the early 60s there was Futurama 2 showing us the future of about 20 years later Uh, in the 90s we had a smart highway craze uh, that where extravagant promises were made. People, at least in transportation, they tend to remember smart highways, but they tend to forget that they were supposed to solve everything and they didn't come close, of course. And in the 20th, 21st century, especially in the last decade, we've been getting sold a vision of the future where autonomous vehicles will finally make all this possible. And Here's where I have to make a super important distinction. I'm often sort of presented with a question that's framed like either I think the technology is amazing and therefore we will get the autonomous vehicles, or I think the technology isn't amazing. And I want to propose actually that the technology is amazing, but amazing technology does not make car dependency work. Technology is a tool and no tool does everything.
1: I must say that the, all the Futurama stuff—I I loved it. It was a great way to start the book. It had like—it's got a strange. I don't know quite what it is, but it has a strangely sinister kind of uh, feeling to it. This sort of like vision of it, this utopian—you know—there's something sinister about utopias, isn't there? That that you know, and especially ones from the past that you know we can see how they never came to be and were never likely to come to be. It has this it's compelling reading I found so uh, um, thank you for that um, but we get into that sort of more recent uh, the more recent past of the 90s and this is where sort of actually the TTI brand was was born really out of that and the 1993 94 we launched um, and uh, and and that was sort of around the time of the first ITS World Congress I think it was that uh, And that had a lot about automated driving. Um, But it had a lot about these these smart highways as well, which which you mentioned there. And I suppose this is where I can perhaps uh, put put an alternative point of view that that maybe smart highways have had some, there's been some success in smart highways. Uh, Would you agree? I mean, some success perhaps, you you, you take take that point.
2: I absolutely agree that there's been some success. So I, I want to be clear that the book is arguing against the notion that technology is going to let everybody drive everywhere where, as their primary mode of getting around, even in cities. We are still being sold that. And that is, incidentally, how smart highways were sold, too. In fact, it was framed specifically by um, the, the people who went to Congress to ask for U.S. taxpayer money to support this actually were arguing against using that money for public transportation. So to them it was an either-or proposition. And And their argument was that the smart highways will solve congestion and drastically reduce collisions. Now by that standard I would regard smart highways as a total failure. But if we look at smaller contributions I completely agree, there's some really important ones. To me, maybe the most important is that it's enabled uh, authorities to charge drivers for something close to the cost of the road capacity that they're using. I would cite the, the congestion charge in London is a wonderful example of this. Uh, it can promote choices that way. In other words, um, the congestion charge in London makes everything else all the other ways of getting around in London work better. Uh, we are striving to get some congestion charging in New York too, where it where it makes complete sense. And the tech has enabled road user charging to work unintrusively. Uh, we need a substitute for fuel taxes and it works in that sense too. And all that began with uh, smart highways. There are other useful things too, especially in the form of uh, navigation uh, so that you know your vehicle tells you where to go and, and can warn you about uh, unexpected uh, congestion up ahead or something like this too. Those are practical advantages. There are some safety features as well. Um, they are no comparison to what was promised, but they are very valuable for sure.
1: but perhaps uh, we didn't get value for money. Perhaps that's your right. Uh, and maybe it, it was a mistake to focus too much on, on smart highways at the expense of public transportation, certainly in the U.S., that would be, be your argument.
2: I think that's right. It was extremely expensive in the U.S., and that's not by accident. The people who really wanted to sell the U.S. Congress, uh, which funded smart highways in the U.S. on smart highways, a lot of them were tech companies in the military sector. I mean, frankly, weapons makers. Uh, This is the era of high-tech weapons. That's the era when smart became the adjective we've learned, uh, namely like high-tech. This immediately followed the Gulf War where smart munitions were sort of publicized for free by uh, the Pentagon on the TV news. People watched these amazing precision weapons, which accounted for something like 5 to 8% of the ordnance actually used. Um, And the weapons makers were saying to each other, the Cold War is ending. Uh, We have the Gulf War, but it's ending too. They had not yet imagined this so-called war on terror that we've had over the last 20 years. And so they quite explicitly said, let's sell the government the idea that we can fight a war on congestion. The fact that you can't really win a war on congestion is kind of a good thing, because it means you'll be selling these weapons forever. And when I say weapons, of course, this time I don't mean literal weapons, but uh, the tools that allegedly uh, reduce road congestion, uh, even in a car-dependent world. So perhaps we
1: didn't get value for money and maybe too much resource was... Uh, allocated it to it to start with. Um, uh, I, I wasn't in the industry back then, so I'll uh, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll not i not comment directly on that. But where we are now, um, you're not saying we should abandon ITS altogether now at this stage.
2: Um, no, I do not think we should be avant- abandoning uh, the the tech at all. In fact, um, I'm troubled by the tendency um, which we've all encountered for there to be an argument that seems to demand that we either be pro-tech or anti-tech, that we either have a tech enthusiasm or be neo-Luddites. I think actually a real appreciation for tech teaches us to be selective about tech. Um, I think we could take an example from a carpenter who, you you don't say the, the carpenter has a favorite tool, rather the carpenter has a tool for each job. And the same is true in tech. The same is true, incidentally, of cars. Cars are wonderful tools, but just like um, a hammer doesn't do all carpentry jobs, a car does not do all transport jobs either. And when you use the tool for the wrong job, you tend to do a really bad job with it. So with ITS, yes, I think there's a lot to do with it. I think it's already doing a lot of good things. I've mentioned a couple that I think are, are, are quite useful. Um, And I think there's more that can be done. I think it can improve public transport. I love the way it's used right now in the Netherlands in particular to ensure that when your train arrives at a train station and you're facing either a taxi ride or a very long walk to your final destination, or figuring out the local bus service, you don't have to do any of those things because there are bikes in the train station your train ticket gives you access to those bikes. Uh, you know exactly how many bikes are available, uh, and you go and get one. You can then bike to your destination. This makes the train work better. It makes the buses work better because they're integrated into this system too. And it's active mobility. Uh, it's good for public health and, and public space. And it's all enabled by some impressive tech.
1: Hmm. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're, all, we're all in a job in the ITS industry for a, for, for a while and, in, and doing good work I think as you rightly point out um, I mean at a lot of these conferences and events that I go to the fo- a lot of the focus is on on multi-modality, mobility as a service you know getting people to their destination regardless of of, of mode that they use and that's become part of ITS, I think it has evolved a lot from from smart highways, but we also we still need smart highways as well because you know we still have roads and people are still going to drive them. We still need to make it as efficient as we can. Um, but obviously, the the, the the point of the book is this is, is warning uh, a very very important warning against this sort of car utopia, the, 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 where everyone drives. And and that's that's the only way of getting around, uh, which which are yeah, as I say I think is a is is a very important warning. And the latest iteration we should get onto the uh, Autonorama, the name of the book, which you frame very very nicely as the uh, the sort of fourth uh, Futurama, as it were. I uh, didn't call it Futurama Four because people might have uh, realised what was happening, right? <laughs> but but we now sort of. Yeah, and is it, are we already now at the stage where perhaps the, the shine is going off slightly on, on, on the autonomous promise, do you think? We're kind of 10 years in, are we, to the, to the sort of initial promises?
2: That's right. So, I mean, I, I don't want to overstretch the point, but these, these uh, waves of optimism seem to be recurring at approximately 25-year intervals, and I think that crested for autonomous vehicles around 2015. Since then, of course, expectations really have retreated a lot. Um, But to me, when the expectations retreat is actually a time for caution because we know from hard experience in the form of history that when the expectations retreat, the people who want to sell us these futures are working very hard at identifying the tech that will make the promise credible again. Because the thing that restores the credibility in each generation is the claim that, well, now we have the tech we didn't have before. So Futurama 2 was made credible, despite the failure of Futurama 1, by transistors primarily, which were you know really perceived as almost magical in their powers, which is amazing to think about now. But you you look at the the conversations about transistors in 1960, and they were really equated with magic. Arthur C. Clarke brilliantly pointed out that um, that uh, new technology that's impressive is psychologically indistinguishable from magic, and it makes us believe that the impossible is possible. The the uh, third generation, it was primarily microprocessors uh, that were. Uh, pr- promoting this this perception that the the smart highways would eliminate traffic congestion, not just relieve it in some marginal way. And um, now as we are entering uh, a period and have been for several years where expectations for autonomous vehicles have retreated, we know from experience that new tech coming along, for example, Things like artificial general intelligence uh, enabled through uh, new generations of machine learning uh, will be used to try to restore that receding credibility. So, yes, I do think that expectations have retreated, but I think that's a time to be alert to new excuses for overpromising.
0: I hope you enjoyed Tom's interview with Peter Norton. Join me again soon for another episode of the Transportation Podcast from TTI. In the meantime, stay in touch with us on Twitter at TrafficTechMag, online at TrafficTechnologyToday.com, and of course, via this podcast. That's it from me. Until next time. The Transportation Podcast from TTI is an MA Business Production. Please like and subscribe. If you're interested in appearing on the podcast, reach us via our website, traffictechnologytoday.com or email traffic at markallangroup.com.